welcome back to the Genix Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Trish the Dish, and I just realized that I've put out a few episodes without really doing any introductions. Um, I had a lot of weekends filled with um, the celebration of my um, my guy friend that's like my brother marrying um, like a pretty incredible lady, and so I was just churning out episodes and um, really wasn't, uh, didn't have a lot of time to do intros. So I'm back, here I am, and um, yeah, and so we probably have some new listeners this season. So I wanted to kind of just really quickly explain um, X voice in a nutshell. Of course, you can always listen to the promo, um, just like a little minute clip of, um, really what you can expect from X voice. So basically I have people from all different generations and through the filter of my Gen X, Gen X voice, um, I navigate conversations with people from different generations to kind of find our, um, find out our differences, but then where also we can meet in this sort of attempt to destroy ageism. Um, so that's why I have uh, a lot of people from a lot of generations. So we've heard from people from Gen X, we've heard from a Xennial, a Gen Z, um, and uh, we're going to hear from a millennial today. And um, Dr. P has been on the podcast before. You might remember him if you've been with me since last season um, from the episode, The History of the Open Border Between USA and Mexico with Dr. P. Dr. P's back. He's going to share with us a little bit about um, the transition that he's made from um, doctoral candidate to being a professor now at a university. So um, really had a fun time talking with him. And um, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Another thing I want to do really quickly is I want to invite you into the GenX Voice Facebook group and Instagram page. Um, so they're two different kind of platforms for two different kinds of social media interaction um, and community building. So if you really like the stuff that you've been hearing on the podcast and you feel like, I want to have, uh, I've got some stuff to say, I've got some thoughts about that, the Gen X Voice Facebook group, uh, just search Gen X Voice, is a great place to um, share your thoughts and um, and and get involved with some discussions that we have there. Um, Instagram is really a fun place where I really dedicate the Gen X Voice Instagram page, again, at Gen X Voice, to the guests and really celebrate them. So you'll see pictures of them, um, links to whatever... Um, groups or, or projects they're involved with, but also too, um, there's fun little polls and things like that. So um, yeah, if you're really enjoying the podcast and you feel like you want just a little bit extra, um, go to GenX Voice. Um, you can also go to GenXVoice.com, by the way, and just find all the things and email me, Trish the dish at genxvoice.com. Um, if you want to be a guest or you just want to give a shout out and, um, or, or just share your own voice, um, whatever you want. I'm totally, I love hearing when you guys enjoy, uh, different guests and different conversations. And, uh, and I'd love to hear what else you want to hear 
us unpack. I mean, you know, I've got my own ideas, but obviously uh, it's a community that we're building here. So let me know. Let me know what you think. But for now, follow me at Gen X Voice um, on Instagram. Find the Facebook group, Gen X Voice, and uh, enjoy the show. Hi, Dr. P. Hi, Trish. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm glad you're back on the podcast. And um, because you've had all kinds of uh, just amazing things happen since we last talked um, or last spoke. And um, and I haven't really spoken to you since then. I mean, we used to hang out at least like a couple times a year. And at this point, has it been like since you came up that one time we walked around um, Indian School Park? Yeah. yeah um, last since, time we saw uh, each other face to face. Yeah, like after New Year's 2020, so uh, pre-apocalypse. Um, so for all Not of us, by this, much. Uh, yeah, for, <laughs> for all of our listeners out there, I guess you know this is completely unscripted. This is fully organic. You know, so we're, we're catching up for real here. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, we've got some ideas that we talked about, but we'll see how it unfolds organically because um, I really, I really just miss you. And I love the idea of being able to catch up with you on, um, on a platform that can like help support you with your projects. And, um, and also just cause you're just amazing and everyone needs to hear about you again. So, um, for the listeners, just so you guys know, um, Dr. P was on season one and we talked about border history on um, Arizona and Mexico border. So I'll go ahead and put a link to that episode. Um, but for now, Carlos, like, why don't you tell us last time we talked to you just gotten your dissertation written. And I think that you graduated either right around the time your episode came out or shortly before or after. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it was, um, when we last spoke, it was like uh, April of last year, no, um, last spring, 2021. Um, and I just defended my dissertation, which, um, you know, for those of us, you know, who are listening in and we're not totally sure how this whole PhD stuff works, you write like a very extensive research project um, in your field, um, original research, um, then you defend it like with your group of um, academic advisors. Um, and if they approve it, then you essentially advance and you become a um, professor uh, of your field. I'm um, in my case, a uh, professor of history or doctor of philosophy and history. Um, so I wrote about the history of Spanish language TV in uh, Southern California, how Univision and Telemundo really grew from having been so successful here in Southern California. Um, I graduated from the University of Southern California, having completed that research. Um, I was in the job market when I last spoke with Trish. By that point, I'd had about 19 or so different applications out to different universities all across the uh, the country. Um, I ended up getting successful. Um, thankfully, I got a few offers um, in May, and I ended up um, selecting a job um, at a, um, a university that's here in Southern California, here, like really, really close to the ocean. Yay! Um, yeah, so did did you move so that you could be closer to the yeah, ocean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, um, it's really been like about a month and a half uh, since I relocated because I used to live in the heart of Los Angeles. Um, those of us who are not familiar with LA, like um, there's a really densely populated neighborhood called Koreatown. Um, when you're walking through there, like a lot of the older apartment buildings, they're like 1920s era um, tenement buildings. So when you're walking around there, it looks, it's almost as if you're walking through like a part of New York City. Um, 
so densely populated. You have, you know, you ride the buses, you may hear Russian spoken, Spanish, um, some of the indigenous languages of Southern Mexico, um, Arabic, uh, Korean. Um, it, it's just a really vibrant, vibrant area, great restaurants. Which um, sounds like I'm, it's it's like so much more um, multiracial than even how you grew up on the border of Arizona and Mexico. And like, I just, I'm so sad that I never got to visit that apartment. Um, I, I really, uh, I'm really sad about that. Like, but I mean, so now you've transitioned over to living by the beach. So, mm-hmm. I mean, Carlos, <laughs> I mean, how, how different is that? Is that like a very, um, is it, it have you found a, a, a kind of uh, lack of diversity the closer to the beach where the money seems to be in Southern California or? Well, it- well, the, well, the neighborhood that I live in here now, it's called um, Del Rey. Um, and it's, you know, for any uh, SoCal listeners out there, it's where the uh, 90 and 405 freeways meet. Um, the 405 freeway kind of having the reputation of being Los Angeles's best parking lot during rush hour. Oh my gosh. Um, How many times? <laughs> Cause I always have to take the 405 to get to my aunt and uncle's house. So you're, are you just on the other side of Topanga Canyon by Malibu? Um, a little bit more Canyon? south. I'm, I'm essentially. So, so more like Venice. by Oceanside? Um, no, it's more by uh, Venice. Um, by Venice. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, so wow. like Santa Monica Beach, Venice. Um, it's right. It's a little bit. Wait a minute. You can there. afford to live in that area with your new job? Yeah. I mean, it's, oh. uh, you know, it's just really doable. And actually this particular neighborhood, because it's not. Venice itself, it's like right next to it. Um, there's a lot of working class um, Mexican and Central American people live around here. It's a pretty, um, all throughout like this neighborhood actually, and there's a lot of um, Mexican supermarkets around here. Um, it's a little pocket of um, so like Latino culture here and significant Asian population. So a lot of older like Japanese oh, wow. Americans. Oh, okay. Well, good. Because I mean, one of the most beautiful things about living in Southern California is like you said, the diversity. And um, mm-hmm. I can't imagine just kind of going to a place where it's like, well, okay, there's no more diversity, no more good food, no more good music. Um, what do you, is there anything different than what you're, what you were used to doing being a college, like a doctoral student? So you worked on your doctorate for like seven years, right? Eight, but who's counting? Eight. <laughs> Eight years. Right. I, we started our, our journal journey at the same time, but I did not keep going with mine. Um, is there, is there a difference in the way that your day-to-day life is compared to when you were a doctoral candidate or, um, do you feel like academia is the same, no matter if you're a student or a professor No, no. Like in terms real- of free time? Well, um, have a lot less free time now, that's for sure. But, uh, no way. um, <laughs> but like, um, well, moving over here, um, well, let, let me, I guess, begin with the more mundane and kind of let's we'll just, you know, move on up through there. Um, living in Koreatown, that was like one of the most transit um, developed like areas of like Los Angeles. You know, when, when our listeners might think, oh, ballet, is this, isn't it just, you know, freeway central? No, that is true. Um, but we have multiple subway lines to that neighborhood and I could actually ride multiple bus lines um, to the USC campus and I could get there in 15 minutes um, even during more difficult um, rush hour like time soon and, and I really loved being on the bus most of those times here um, in the west side of Los Angeles in uh, the Del Rey slash Venice area um, 
I, that's really not an option. Um, if I really wanted to take public transit to the, the university, um, I'd really have to go out of my way like, to get over there. Um, so now I, um, I drive to school every day and I have parking um, uh, on campus. Um, so that's already a change like from before. So it kind of makes me feel a little bit more different. So how um, long's the commute then? Thankfully, just 10 minutes. I'm, I'm very thankful like it's not too bad. Oh, um, what's really interesting, though, is if I leave my apartment at 730, I can still get there in like 10 minutes. Traffic's not too bad. If I leave at 735, it goes up to like 15 minutes because there's a lot more people <laughs> just in those five minutes. And I'm not kidding. Like uh, just in those five minutes. I believe a lot it. More I believe it. <laughs> um, right, so that's some more mundane stuff. But um, being a professor at the university, I tell my students and I, and I don't I've, I've been very um, cautious, like not to tell them that I just graduated recently. I mean, they can probably get the sense that I'm younger, but um, I'm holding off and telling them until like the end of the semester. Um, I tell them, you can call me Carlos. You don't have to call me like Dr. Barra or Professor. They will not call me by my first name. Um, they, I, you know, I refer to myself by my first name all the time. I encourage them. They won't do it. Um, and it's just really um, something for them you know, to come up to me after class. Oh, professor, I have a question. Oh, hey, professor. You know, if they run into me on campus or Dr. Barra, uh, it's really a uh, uh, it's taken a lot of getting used to. So um, when you were a high school teacher, though, I mean, people called you Mr. Pata, like, mm-hmm. or did they call you Mr.? <laughs> yeah, just Mr. <laughs> right. So um, why why do you prefer to hear your name? I mean, you just spent eight years to be a doctor and you want to go by Carlos? Like, I've been calling you Dr. P mm-hmm. for like six of those years. Cause I'm like, I was, I knew you were going to get that. Um, like why, why then in for like informality? Well, part of the reason that I finished the PhD was because uh, you call me Dr. Petrish. So, you have so <laughs> it's all, it's hundred yes. percent me guys. Just so uh, everyone knows. You. Um, well, well <laughs> no. part of it is that like I'm at USC, um, when I would teach classes, honestly, not yet as a professor, as a PhD, um, I wanted the students like, to feel comfortable relating to me. Um, so, um, you know, I'd let them, you know, tell them like to uh, call me that. Um, it was really interesting towards the end, like after um, almost I announced to them that I got my PhD, that students, um, including from like other classes, so two courses with us, um, they started calling me professor already. Um, I, I, and I guess at my current university, I want the kids to feel that they can relate to me, um, now they can ask me questions. You know, I don't want them to feel like there's this like barrier. Oh, it's doctor, you know, or professor. Um, but you know, it's it, it is something, I guess. You know, it, it's it's something I, I do take a, a lot of value in. And the the irony, uh, Trish, is that I remember having conversations like with my friends who are also like in graduate school, you know, finishing up their PhDs, and I always like, you know, the, the kids are gonna have to call me doctor. Father didn't go to. Um, graduate school for eight years from now. Um, but I, I guess it's just a little bit of transitioning still into actually being a professor and instructor of record um, and wanting the students to be able to relate to me. That's the. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time that you, I mean, I can understand the the re- relationship building that you want because you want to be able to, to meet them where they are, but at the same time, like it's a respect thing. Like they're there to learn from you. So no matter mm-hmm. how much on their level you want to be, you're never going to be on their level because you have dedicated eight years of your life to tear apart a certain topic to become the expert in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's so, I don't know, I, you know, and, and the, the fact that you, um, your dissertation was on, um, 
Latino um, television and, and things like that. I mean, that is really cool. Is that what you're teaching currently? Or are you able to use what you studied all these years for, because that was a really amazing, I was thinking about you the other day when someone um, brought up Univision and, Mm -hmm. or Univision and um, Uh well, see, I still sound a little French. We had this problem last time. Every time I try to say say something in Spanish, (laughs) it comes out Frenchish. But yeah, are you, are you able to do that or, or bring some into, or is your curriculum already created? Like, what does that look like? Um, well, right now I'm teaching um, intro to Chicano Latino studies and uh, Chicano Latino history. Um, so very much in this uh, field that I've studied in for like the last uh, um, eight years at USC and then the two years during my master's program. Um, it's been a challenge because um, at USC, I only had the opportunity to teach um, U.S. history classes. So this is my first time teaching these two courses, period. Um, oh, uh, no was- way. You didn't get to teach any sort of... Uh- Chicana literature because I took a Chicana women and mm-hmm. cultures class at NAU. It was amazing. I'm sure I've told you that before. That's like the mm-hmm. one one feather in my cap that I'm really proud of. <laughs> um, but that was at NAU, and it was I don't remember who it was taught by because the words of the books were so much more impressed upon me than the professor. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you were always teaching American history all this time, huh? Yeah, well, well the, wow. the, the the thing is, like, uh, um, USC being kind of like a smaller private university, relatively speaking, um, there's, in our history program, there are limitations to, to like, what's uh, taught, um, and unfortunately, there's usually not enough enrollment, like, for, um, in a Chicano Latino history class, whether to be able to have no multiple sections. No way. But, Are you serious uh, at no, USC? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, ser- I'm serious, like, and then, um, where they do <sighs> offer more dedicated classes for that, it's in American studies, Um and at USC, um, to be admitted into graduate programs, so whether you pretty much have to work within your department, you get full funding as a graduate student. You get full funding, you teach on their behalf. Um, but the other flip side of it, as a graduate student, you're not allowed to teach your own courses as an instructor of record. Um, so those classes, you know, Chicano Latino Studies, that will attract, they are popular, but not they don't have the enrollment numbers to justify multiple sections where I could have been like a teaching assistant for them. Um, those wow. pretty much just stay in the purview of like the professors. So that's the negative thing. Um, Even so, after all these years, I'm just so surprised by that. Well, especially where um, USC is being in the middle yeah. of um, South Los Angeles, actually being right next to the most, the, the largest Central American neighborhood in the United States. And yeah, uh, I mean, Union. that's not the people that are going to USC though. Let's be honest, because it, no, it, I mean, it, it is it, it is changing. It, it is because the university has been doing a lot of efforts lately to really promote kind of um, outreach in the, it, the the neighborhoods that it's located. In. And they've, they've partnered with um, high schools in the area to um, kind of track students into being uh, prepared for college and kind of becoming like better um, applicants like for college. And they kind of have like a foot in the door, so to speak, like to enter USC. Um, and you can tell, because I, I would teach like a lot of students who told me that they grew up in the neighborhood and they participated in programs that USC created there. Good. Um, but but there's a long way to go for sure. You know, yeah. and it's certainly, um, it's a long, long, long road still that remains for that. Well, so for our listeners who maybe, maybe they missed uh, our first episode together, or um, I don't know if we even really unpacked this, but um, what's the difference? I mean, I know because I studied this, um, but what's the difference between Chicana 
and mm-hmm. and or Chicano and Latina or Latino and Hispanic. I mean, surely you can unpack that. I'm, I'm sure. Is that like the first thing that you guys talk about in day one of your class? Actually, yeah. Like in both, both <laughs> of these it. courses, that was like the first thing that we went in. Um, and, um, you know, I was a little bit nervous. Like, oh, I don't know if this is going to be like too much for the kids. So they'll like space out and drop. Um, but we ended up having like really fascinating conversations about this. Um especially since a lot of students said that they really didn't understand like where the terms came from. Uh, there were some students who um, said they had never heard of like the newer term, the Latinx identifier until like they were in class oh, and we way. started like reading about it. Um, wow. so, it's, so it goes to show how still new that is. Um, you, right. you know, there's some uh, folks like, in the media and in, like uh, academia kind of assume that this is what people want when um, there was a study recently um, that of only like 3% of like Latinos in one particular survey, which I believe was from the Pew Hispanic Research Center, actively used like the Latinx identifier. Um, and well, you were the one that told me that, that like you, you didn't like that term. I, I'm not a fan of it. Um, yeah. Since I, I really don't like like this very active way of um, degendering like the Spanish language. That's just the way that it functions. And it gives it like a, you know, like a little quaint character, just, just like how in English you could say like, oh, you know, it's, mostly like a um, gender neutral in a sense, you know, like uh, minus like certain words that specifically used in Spanish like sentence structures and grammar like change depending on the um, gender of the uh, topic. And because part of the thing is, and you know, and I always tell, keep this in a nutshell, um, one of the main arguments like, well, it's using, let's be like gender neutral. It's, you know, you said Latinx identifier because um, mentioning like gender within language, genderized, terms is hurtful there's a lot of terms in spanish language that are like feminine you know like the n and a or like a variance of it that are powerful um you know we have like la nacion which is the nation which is in spanish is conceived of as being feminine um, and and, family, and like, mesa and like you know like um in terms of like um mountaintops and things like that mm-hmm. i know in french uh mountains are feminine and you can't get much more powerful than a mountain yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's just, you know, it, 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 I, I think sometimes um, a lot of like the more, um, how shall I put it, overwhelming kind of like opposition to like, you know, like these sort of like gender um, constructions of like uh, language are a little bit too much. And it's just kind of, it says more about like the insecurities of the people that want the language to change more than the actual language. You know, but then on the other hand, when, when we're talking about people who are like gender non-binary or maybe like they're you know, somewhere like in the transgender spectrum, you know, and like in this like, journey, um, that's when I, you know, I'm a little bit more sympathetic. Okay, you know, Latinx, that's when I identify you know, a lot of that. Um, I, I guess it's just more like these like wholesale like attacks like in the entire language of changing words that are not even applicable like to human beings where it gets a little bit crazy. But so like well, in class, I'll, I'll use like Latina, Latino, Latinx, like all three together just to kind of you know, make So there's sure. no like Chicana, Chicanx? That one's... Um, popular um, now there's really? variations of it where it starts with an X where it's like instead of like a CH it's like a X for like a Chicana Chicanex that's nice. the other one it, it's not as popular and it's not going to take off as much throw as back, throw back to the Aztecs right a little bit um, there's even with that there's a lot of um, controversy like where exactly it comes from some people think that it's a corruption of the, of the term you know Mexican that like uh, 
maybe like white Americans believe that white Americans may have used that against Mexican people in New Mexico, like uh, kind of like condescendingly, like a, oh, our little Me- Mexicanitos, you know, or like something like that. That's where it's, that's one right. um, origin story of that. Um, so there's no, and, and of course, despite the fact that like the term Chicano has been around for, um, there's indicate there's the first print indication of it that goes back to like the 1930s um, and the more sort of activist usage of this goes back to like the mid 60s as long as present as this term has been it's not as universally accepted as people might think um back in nogales like the arizona mexico border town where we met uh trish um you know just remind our listeners where this community is located and yeah um, most people will not call themselves chicano that that is not something that uh, exists over there um you know mexican yes no mexicano yes hispanic yeah Latino but Chicano is really not an identifier that people use over there. Um, and it's more well, and, a, and a, as a white person, I can't walk up to someone and be like, "Hey, Chicana!" Like <laughs> that's not considered very respectful either. Um, mm-hmm. But the '60s were just like um, a lot of the um, elements of Black culture that were. Um, really you celebrating African heritage, like, you know, natural hair and dashikis, um, the term Chicana and Chicano were kind of used as this sort of anthem for, for, for protest and, and awareness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of like reclaiming, uh, the terms, a lot of, just like um, a radical term. So people that are more, maybe, um, as we know, um, Richard Nixon made a huge um, part of his um, campaign geared toward Los Angeles, Mexican population, Mexican-American population. And so therefore, a lot of a lot of Mexican heritage folks, especially in Southern California and the Southwest, have tendencies toward Republicanism. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it was like the first time that people were like, hey, I think that's a vote we can use. And it was Nixon, of course. Um, Well, actually, um, there is a lot of truth to that. And there's a book that came out recently um, that maybe you and um, our listeners might be interested in um, a book by a gentleman named uh, Jerry Cadava. um, And it looks at um, Hispanic conservatives and how active they were. Um, And for any listeners who might be listening, perhaps you as well, uh, Trish, if I haven't had like your wallet nearby, if you take out any American denomination of what's like a dollar bill, five dollars, ten dollars, you'll notice that the um, treasurer of the United States has always been like a um, Latina woman. Um, And President Nixon began. Wait, what? um, yeah, yeah, like uh, look it up. Look it up. You just, you know, take a look there in your wallet. Wow. Um, that goes back. Listeners, I'll put a post to that book that, that Carlos just <laughs> mentioned and a picture of a dollar bill or something so y'all can see. Um, but so what were you saying that Nixon decided that from here on forth, we will always have a Latina? Well, well, he didn't. Well, he didn't say that he, you know, like, oh, by law or by decree, you know, it's always going to be like the Latina. But he did actively um, pursue. Um, uh, you know, what back then would have become like Hispanic um, business people. Um, it's like saying, like, look at how much your taxes went up during this war on poverty in the 1960s. Um, don't you think you'd have a better deal if I lowered your taxes and you paid a more business-friendly environment for you? So, um, and I don't quite remember um, the first Latina um, U.S. treasurer's name, but she had kind of a, a pretty extensive restaurant business here in the uh, U.S. Um, in Southern California. Um, 
And so she had already a connection with uh, Nixon, you know, him being you know, Southern California, uh, you know, native. Um, so when he became president, um, to thank her for her support in the, uh, the 1968 election, he appointed her treasurer, treasurer of the United States, uh, which is not the same as the secretary of the treasury, um, but treasurer of the United States. Um, and this officer's um, signature always appears on the, um, the, the denomination notes in the U.S. So he began this uh, trend. Um, Reagan continued it. George H.W. Bush continued it. George W. Bush continued it as well. Um, and under Trump as well, despite the um, obvious like, anti-Mexican, anti-Latino rhetoric that he used, he continued that. Um, so it's kind of like this unspoken rhetoric that um, Republican presidents have that they, uh, or tradition, I should say, um, that they'll appoint like a Latina woman to be the treasurer of the United States. And it's because of this early wow. Nixon thing. I will just say though, um, Nixon was not like the first to really galvanize Latino. That was actually President Kennedy. Um, his wife- oh, no kidding? Yeah, now his wife in particular, since she spoke Spanish, that like she convinced um, John F. Kennedy like to pursue the uh, Mexican-American vote. Um, they had a lot of, um, not only the Mexican-American vote, the Puerto Rican vote as well. Um, they created like, quote unquote, Viva Kennedy clubs in like New York City and Los Angeles, um, South Texas. Um, Jacqueline Kennedy um, would give commercial um, commercials in Spanish. Um, and, a lot, and since, you know, President Kennedy was the first... Um, Roman Catholic to win the U.S. presidency, a lot of Mexican-American people really cared for him, they appreciated him for that. Uh, and that was a big, big part of his success in New York and uh, throughout the uh, so um, Southwest how come So how come more, um, I mean, so what is the, if I'm, if I'm going to talk about this population, I think we've, we talked about just very briefly last um, episode, um, but is it more correct to say Mexican-American uh Latino, Hispanic, uh, or is it really just preferential to the person? So if I'm like, well, why are the majority of Mexican Americans Republican in the Southwest? Like, mm -hmm. would that be, is that, is that a, a thoughtful enough question to say that, or it doesn't even have any merit. So I shouldn't even be asking a question like that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, it's, it's always good to ask, you know, we have dialogue and like to ask questions, right. So we can kind of, um, Right. So the, the, the name of the book that I mentioned where it talks about like uh, Nixon's relationship to um, you know more conservative Latinos is called the, the Hispanic Republican, um, the shaping of an American political identity from Nixon to Trump. Um, now, to your other question, the, the more, I guess, like neutral term, um, the one that I usually that I used to like for the most part was like Mexican-American or kind of, you know, Puerto Rican or Cuban-American. Um, and then we'll use like the term and, and identify like Latino to refer to like the larger pan-ethnic population. Right. Because um, I mean, not everyone that speaks Spanish is of Mexican heritage, just like mm -hmm. not everyone who has um, dark pigmentation is not African descent. Some of them may be Caribbean descent. And things like that. So, well, then, then there's also like the term like Asian American. Um, so when you have you know ethnic Chinese people, or ethnic Japanese, ethnic Korean people back in Asia itself, they don't see themselves as Asian. They're Koreans, they're Chinese, they're right. Taiwanese, and, and then when they come here to the U.S. and they this completely different um, racial structure, then all of a sudden now they're all Asian Americans and they're supposed to have like this sense of solidarity. Um, right. So it's all it all these noodles, all right? In the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. I know it's just really um, it just goes to show how you know ridiculous all this is and how um, 
there's a term for this um, by that was um, invented by um, anthropologist uh, Benedict Anderson, um, who calls these imagined communities. Um, so, for example, there's not an inherently actively existing um, Latino community, it's not inherently actively existing Asian American community, and et cetera, et cetera. You have to have people, you know, this, these intellectuals, you have to have like uh, um, mass media telling people, oh, look, you're Latinos, oh, look, you're Asian Americans, you're African, to kind of create like this larger sense of community that you have to imagine into being that, that's supposed to bring people together. And just by the same token, um, What's to say that all like the 300 million people that live in the United States are Americans, right? Um, people of right. so many different backgrounds and life journeys. We need obviously politicians, you know, to say, oh, the American dream, uh, America, blah, blah, blah. And we need like the media to be constantly reminding ourselves like, oh, this is America. We do this. We do that. We actually, we actively need people reinforcing this sense of community that we belong to, to this larger entity. So that's, that's always a kind of like, uh, you know, identities kind of, you know, come, come about being, I guess. Well, when I lived in France, I met um, I met these brothers. They were twin brothers from Oaxaca, mm -hmm. and um, they were like, "Why do you guys call yourself Americans? Like, we're also Americans." And that was the first time I ever like heard that, and was like, "Oh my gosh, you're right." And then there's like North Americans that are like also from Canada, and mm -hmm. you know the and there's South Americans from Panama and, you know, mm -hmm. so it's really interesting that, that our country is like, we're American, we're Americans. It's like, well, actually you're part of like many, many countries that also identify as American. Well, it's just um, like the really like tricky aspect of all this, you know, cause we're calling ourselves Americans here in the U S like it kind of makes us forget about like the rest of the hemisphere, whether it's Canada you know, to the North or, you know, all the Latin American right. nations. Um, so it's also it's it's an unfortunate aspect of that kind of like the mentality that we have of the U.S. being kind of like this island, you know, really like in the world. Um, and you know, and that our country some... is always shown as like so much more bigger than it actually is to scale to other mm -hmm. countries. Like I remember learning once uh, very recently, actually, you know, in the last 10 years or so that like the amount of times that the United States could fit into Africa was was far beyond what I had ever thought. It was like 10 times or something like that. And I was like, wait, how big is Earth? Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> sometimes when we're out, you know, um, in the wilderness, right, when we were when we're hiking out there, it looks like forever mm -hmm. that there's this national park we're in or, you know, and so to think that it's still not as big as that that Africa could be bigger than that by, by so much more is like, 
or, or think about how many times like the U.S. could just literally just you know be dropped into like Russia um, and oh, still have like gosh. you know plenty of space you know, just in one country, yeah. um, like that. Like, That's a uh, good point. Probably like all of Siberia is probably like three United States when you think about it. But yeah, the Gobi um, Desert is like I think three United States too. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah the the ethnocentricity of America is so ridiculous. But well, okay. So anyway. Now that you, I mean, cause we could, we could unpack that for days, but now that you have, I want to kind of go back into like your life of like being a professor and like, mm-hmm. how does it feel different? And maybe this is what you're struggling with in terms of people calling you professor. Um, you should have them call you professora or professor, <laughs> because mm-hmm. um, that's what I always loved was hearing mademoiselle. Like if you're taking mm-hmm. my French class, you're calling me mademoiselle. It's still calling me miss. Mm-hmm. But you get to, you know, you're practicing your Spanish. So have them call you professor. <laughs> See if well, that changes um, you. Well, kind, of, kind of the affectionate way of uh, professor in like Spanish is like, profe. Um, oh, yeah. Dude, maybe, tell maybe, them to call you that. Um, there's been a handful that have been calling me that. Like uh, like when they're walking, I'm like, See ya, profe. Um, hey, so kind of cute. Do you have um, a very ethnic? Well, no. Okay. Uh, we'll come back to that. I really want to know. How different is it from, as our listeners who may have listened to your other episode know, you were a high school teacher. That's how we met in Nogales mm-hmm. High School. And then you were a grad assistant, um, which for those who are non-college going folks, that's, you know, a student who's working on their degree teaching. Um, mm-hmm. Usually they are masters or above. And now to be a professor. So what what is the difference like i was like i was curious before like do you have your own curriculum do you have freedom to create a curriculum like you did in high school or is it very similar to where you have to have certain points that you and and so the professor or the the university's already created a sort of syllabus for you that you have to go by well um entering this uh, program where i'm at which is uh, a one year um visiting assistant professorship um, I, I essentially, I've been given a lot of freedom uh, to sort of teach these courses on um, the way that I see fit. So I have like a, a significant amount of autonomy. I, I was given um, samples of syllabi used in previous semesters, which kind of helped inform what I had. But to get this position, I actually needed to have um, presented them already with a um, draft of a syllabus. Um, well, oh, so I did. Cool. Um, I already, so already you were like that working work. on that the whole time before you even really got the job or did you get the job and then immediately was like, oh, yes, I had know exactly what I want to do. Well, I, I needed to have um, submitted that for the job application just to even receive an, an interview. Oh, wow. Um, so um, for a lot of these um, academic, like, you know, professor positions, that's part of the application. That's what makes it really difficult at times. Because um, you want to obviously take like a very challenging rigorous class but one that's still something that the students could realistically do right you know you want to assign them like 100 pages of reading like every day um uh so that one part of it um you know they they liked it you know, at this university where i'm at they gave me the job and then once they gave me the schedule that i'd be using to teach then i modified it um, to make it fit uh, as as appropriate um there are um at this university and most of the universities like uh, requirements like oh we um, upper level course needs to have this many assignments um, where they have to do writing 
um, or they have to have like this many exams, or they have to have this amount of reading. So there are those um, parameters and then also requirements. You need to um, promote like diverse viewpoints here. You need to talk about the role of women, sexuality, um, socioeconomic class, et cetera. Um, so those are the main parameters, but outside of that, like I, I've, um, I don't really need to necessarily follow any like strict standards beyond that, beyond, beyond meaning like those like general um, considerations. So I have the required amount of writing in my class, but then how I go about it in terms of like the specific assignments, the readings that I put in, like the topics I cover, that's entirely on me. Um, like for example, in my Chicago Latino studies classes, because of the role of Catholicism and religion in general in um, like Latino life, I do have um, like about a week's worth of readings covering that. In the um, syllabi from previous semesters that I was given to help me, I mean, really finalize like, my syllabus, they, they didn't have any of that. They didn't touch like on religion. Um, and some of the other professors, like they really don't discuss like certain ethnic groups like in their courses. Like in my class, I really want to emphasize like uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, no, excuse me, um, Central Americans and Puerto Ricans. So it's not just like an overview of Mexican American history in California. Right. So it's one of the larger and Latino um, history like throughout the U.S. Um, so, but, but, you know, so it just goes to show it really depends on who's teaching the class, and what they're trying to um, promote with it. And then in my courses, I really like for the students to be active in the class, for them to be speaking. Um, I don't want to be lecturing the entire time. Um, and it's been uh, pretty good for the most part. Um, like the students, like uh, I've been, I've had good luck so far assigning them readings that they found interesting, like readings about like, you know, like the Latinx term, um, readings about uh, um, Mexican migration to the U.S. in the 1940s, and what you know those men had to go through. Um, we'll, we'll perhaps follow up on this later, but um, there was this program in the 1940s between the U.S. and Mexico where the U.S. imported um, thousands and thousands of uh, Mexican laborers to um, address like, the labor emergency the U.S. had during World War II. Um, but when these Mexican laborers were crossing the border, they had to go through a health inspection uh, where they were hosed down like with uh, pesticides and DDT to make sure they were not bringing any uh, germs into the U.S. Oh, my God. Just treated um, like cattle. Treated like cattle. Um, there's footage of those men like being stripped down naked and um, being dehumanized by oral history. So those men saying how embarrassing that was for them and humiliating um, how they still remember it um, 60, 70, 80 years later. Um the kids really, really responded to that. Um, I had some students, um, some of my like white white students, like admitting, like you know, Dr. Biden never ever heard about this before. This is really, um, this is really something. Um, really but I mean, incredible. that's what universities are for, right? Like, mm -hmm. I never knew the real story of Pocahontas, for example, mm -hmm. until I took this history class. Like, I really, um, that's why I couldn't, I couldn't leave undergrad. Like the amount of information that you were able to just learn and realize that you've never learned anything your whole life mm -hmm. until you step into um, a classroom. And like you said, it is, it is up to the professor. It definitely is. Um, but it's, it's, it's like, I don't know. What is it? Is it different to see these young adults kind of understanding the grasp of how big the world is for the first time or is it similar to teaching high school where you kind of are doing that but just on a smaller level but and they're just not as i don't remember being nearly as wowed 
when I learned stuff in, in, in K-12 than when I went to university level. Well, it's, I think I have to like think about it. Like when we're in K-12 um, fields, right? We have like a, a more stricter curriculum to follow with like the state standards. I didn't. Um, um, well, I, I mean, it's relative, <laughs> that's the um, beauty of being an elective is you you do have to hit certain standards, but they're so generic so that you can mm-hmm. be so creative that like I was teaching, you know, um, all kinds of stuff from literature to history to like politics in mm-hmm. my classes. Like it was great. There was like I was the only teacher doing that, too. There's no there's not I mean, not the only one, but not a lot of teachers teach like that. You know, they'd like teach you how to like wait tables or something. <laughs> well, but, but growing up, like, um, I don't know how it may have been like, uh, um, you know, with, with, you know, like where you went like, to like high school, but like, I know in Nogales, like kids really always would talk about like their French teachers, um, like, or like every other go high school, like the German teacher. Um, so it goes to show how like, you know, kind of like these classes where it's like an introduction to like another culture, like another, um, you know, life way really right you know like into like french you know french class but you're right. learning about like french culture too right and maybe you might learn about like you know other french-speaking countries around the world like in like africa um, oh 100 percent, we did in um, my class Heck which is good yeah. so I've, you know our kids you know especially at that age they're not going to know about that i mean that's that's where it's our job like so i teach them and like uh um and i think that's what really makes it sound and i'm seeing a lot of that like so a lot of um my students here at my university like they don't and I'll be honest, most of my students, they are white American, probably um, half to maybe like three quarters of them are white American. Um, but they've actually been really interested. Like um, it, it seems to me, it's been like, they ask me like questions that are not kind of like those like butt kissing, like, oh, Dr. Bada, blah, blah, yeah. And like, we can kind of like sense it trying to kiss your butt. Like they'll ask questions like, uh, oh, Dr. Bada, right now when you were lecturing, I looked up this thing you said, like, uh, um, this, these Mexican, this Mexican military unit. Oh, it's really neat. I found this New York times piece. So sometimes they'll ask questions. You can tell it's actually like genuine interest. Um, uh, and I appreciate that. And I, and I really like how a university setting can give us a chance to kind of build community, kind of think about one another. Um, for like a, lot such like that a smaller scale than high school, right? Like, cause you know, you're only getting them for a semester, but is it a deeper connection? Cause they want to be there. Cause they have to choose to your, take your class out of all the classes. Well, the, the, the two, the more active classes that I have are right in the morning. Um, I have a class at eight in the morning every day, then another one at nine 30, um, hour long classes. And, Going in, I thought uh, this is probably these are probably gonna be the classes where the kids are not gonna like really talk. They're gonna be too sleepy, um, and I was completely wrong. They're very vocal in those classes. They ask really interesting questions when they're in um, groups. Like they, I can tell they actually are keeping up with like the the readings because they're able to ask each other questions and have really engaging conversations. Um, so, and I think part of it is like you know not only are you invested in this class because you chose it. Um, it's also because you chose it even being like eight in the morning and you wanted like to like learn about this. Um, so amazing. So it, it is something. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if students are just changing though, because, you know, we just, I don't know if it's COVID too, but like, you know, young, I don't think young people are out clubbing and, you know, tearing it up. Like, like, we, like we used to, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if 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 students are a lot more serious about their studies and and like um, it's possible. I, I mean, like these um, the intro Chicano Latino studies kids for the most part they're um, freshmen and sophomores. So like a lot of the last time a lot of these kids were 
um, in an in-person classroom. They were still high school students. Yeah. Um, so I think there's part of that. Um, and, and as such, you can, I can tell like uh, some of these kids are still kind of like in that, you know, mental transition. And like the, sometimes they'll ask questions that are very, you know, kind of high school-like. And I find it endearing because I really miss teaching high school. I really loved my um, experiences at Novalis High School. And like uh, um, there were many times there um, where I could tell the kids actually were interested and they had sincere um, curiosity in it. And like you could tell, just look at their facial reactions that they were um, learning through all this. Um, and that's with, even within like the constraints of like um, state standards. Um, so it's, you know, us being educators, we know like the debate like about standards and common courts kind of, you know, fading away now and all this. But if you're a good teacher, um, you're going to find ways like, to use the standards to, um, you know, improve your teaching, make it stronger and like, you're not going to let any of that kind of get in your way. So. Yeah, it's funny when I had um, I had our other favorite historian on um, a, a couple episodes get, uh, ago, um, Joe. I think you guys mutually have appreciated each other's episodes from last season. And, um, and we, we really talked at length about like what the importance of teaching history in high school is. And, um, you know, he really, he really brought up how, how terrible standards standardization is of teaching and, you know, all of these things. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what, they have to do. They have to teach the test. And, and it's, and it's almost like he just couldn't wrap his mind around that. Cause he's never, he's taught in, you know, the college level as a grad student, but not as um, a high school teacher. And um, it's really great to hear you being like, yeah, you've got the standards, but that can't stifle you. Cause I remember you did a whole, you did a whole unit on like a social media Mm-hmm. And like, well, you know, and yeah, that right, was like, in its yeah. like pretty mm-hmm. infantile stages. Well, maybe not infantile because it maybe was 11 years in. Um, and well, I guess infantile for Facebook. But um, I mean, do you do you feel that history is now that you now that you kind of see both high school and college? Do you feel like history is still something that should be taught at the lower levels? and should it be standardized or should it be, um, and, and, you know, how, how much can we, how much can we get away with if we don't standardize? Like are, is Texas going to have a different history than say New Hampshire? Probably already well, does, um, right? <laughs> well, the, the thing is like, um, and, and I, I see like Joe's point with it, you know, cause sometimes you, you do have weaker teachers. Um, and I, I mean, weaker in the sense that they don't understand like the, curriculum itself like that well or like um like the art of teaching that you don't that you're going to look at the standards and run away with them um you, you were mentioning that social media thing i i used um what, what i did um you know for our listeners um when i was a teacher at Novellas high school i had my students like write biographies on uh historical figures from the american civil war um or u.s civil war you know let's go back to the u.s civil war um and instead of just saying, okay, here's the paper, make write a paper, do a presentation, I had the students create um, fake MySpace profiles on them, you know, using um, you know oh, poster wow. boards um, and print out pictures. Um, so it was, was meant to be okay. a creative thing. And I told the students, you know, you don't have to talk in the exact same language that they did in the 1860s. Say what they're trying to say, but use like our terms today. Um, and the kids really went away with it. Like they found pictures of, like, for example, like Robert E. Lee, 
um, they found pictures of other Confederate like a general. So he was leading around and they showed him as his like top eight friends on his MySpace um, page. And, and obviously MySpace, <laughs> is, uh, MySpace is nothing now in 2021. But 10 years ago, it was so popular enough. The kids would use it and they comment in their um, pages. And it, so they put like fake conversations between like Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. Um, later on, like they had like somebody created like a... Um, a MySpace page for like Dan Quayle, um, you know, for one of my other classes. And they put a lot of his like really like dumb quotes there. Um, you know, like, uh, um, and they put like, you know, him being friends like with Ronald Reagan and George Bush and people making fun of him. So it's just really um, funny. Like, uh, it's just a way to like being creative. That's not in the standards, no, that's not, but it's teaching American history, US history, um, being creative in a way that speaks to like the students. I also taught about, um, Southwestern history, it's really, uh, ironically enough, that's really not like in the Arizona standards. I talked about like the. Right. We talked about that the in the last um, episode that you had that like you really weren't exposed to that border history until mm-hmm. this one professor or one one teacher. But but if you, you know, but if you read between the lines, you know, like the existing standards, there is room to talk about it. And that's the thing. So it's um, you don't want to standardize too much. Right. Um, either. But like the standards themselves are not by themselves are not necessarily like a bad thing. And I will just say this one. Um, apparently yesterday in the state of California, they actually made ethnic studies um, a graduation requirement from high school. Um, yes. yes. Are you um, serious? I'm serious. It's, it's um, and actually it's wow. following the footsteps of Texas that last year made um, ethnic studies their graduation requirement as well. Um, and there, Wait, Texas did that last year? I thought they were the ones that were like uh, going back to the dirt there, pages with their there is some things but it, but it goes back right i mean not all school districts not all teachers in texas are like you know along like those like more like regressive really antediluvian interpretations of u.s history so they actually passed a bill in the texas wow. legislature governor abbott of all people signed it um That's and it's incredible so texas precedes other states like california um in enacting like ethnic studies high school um, graduation requirements so beginning um, a few school years from now, that will be a requirement. That's already a requirement for the um, state universities here in California. Um, and part of the reason it took so long to make it is just the, um, the you know education committees and consultants were working on creating like some general form of standards, um, right? So that people can actually have like a intellectually and academically rigorous um, program of study uh, for people like to teach like Mexican American studies or Asian American studies like at the high school level. So that's all this to say that standards actually can be a really good and a really helpful thing to have. Um, and that gives, you know, instructors, educators, like a building blocks to actually build something like really, um, you know, really good from that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of heading to the end of our conversation together, um, mm-hmm. which is like, how did an hour just go by, <laughs> by the way? Um, and, and it's really different route than I, than I think we had talked about, but I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is like, <laughs> you're in, you're in academia as a professor now. Like I want to talk about it, Cause that's how we met. We're teachers. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess, I guess the, you know, the final, final question I have for you really is like, um, do, do you see yourself now that you have conquered this hill? And by the way, and we're seeing this at the very end of the podcast, um, once again, that Dr. Uh, Dr. Pata, Dr. P though he Mm -hmm. is considered a millennial, um, has 
lots of Gen X uh, friends and ties. And I, again, I'll, I'll put the link to his last episode in, um, in this, in the show notes, but um, do you feel like you want, did you like the, um, the dissertation process or the research process enough to feel like I can't wait to write a book now, or is there a next step? I mean, what is the next step after you reach doctorhood, I guess is what I want to ask, or are you content to just be a professor? I mean, there's no such just in front of it. I'm just saying, um, would, would that be, you know, your goal to just, man, if I could just be, um, you know, uh, God, I can't believe I just forgot the name of it. Um, when you get to be a teacher forever at a university, yeah, tenured, I cannot believe I just used that word. Uh, yeah. What's, what's the next, is there a next? Is this it? Well, right now, um, since like I'm in a one-year contract for my current university, I, I, you know, I was hired with the understanding that you know there's all I'm going to get was this one year. Um, I have to continue applying for positions again, like for more for a ten-year track uh, position. Where upon getting that position, it would not be um, guaranteed that oh, you're going to automatically get tenure. It's more like okay, we're offering you this tenure track position where if you meet the these upcoming requirements you know these professional um accomplishments you publish a book um you, you do x amount of like service for the university then you'll receive tenure at this university and then your job will be completely secure you know indefinitely from that so that's what i'm doing right now looking for like a tenure track position somewhere um uh i do um, i am starting work from my book the, the problem though is that um the archives that I need, like at the, the UCLA um, library, like they're still close to like the general public because of COVID. So um, um, then there's also like the time management that I'm still kind of um, kind of trying to settle into um, and teaching three classes and grading and planning and so forth, especially since it's like the first time that I've taught these classes. Um, but I'm doing little bits here and there like to um, make the dissertation into a book someday, um, kind of the history of Univision and Telemundo um, in Southern California. Someday I'd love to write a book about like the Latino history of like modern Arizona because there's very little on it actually. Like there's a few books here and there. Most of what does exist is like the older um, Mexican era, you know, Arizona, like pre-1850s or like um, what happened like right. really early on. But um, yeah, so that's kind of like some of the journeys that I'm considering. Oh, I love that, Carlos. That sounds like, that sounds so inspiring. And, um, and I know I speak for all the listeners that, you know, I, I really, you know, I've loved watching you go down this journey, um, all these years and, um, and I just can't wait to see what else is in store for you. So, you know, keep us posted and, and good luck. And man, if you guys are, you know, interested, um, I want to plug, I want to give you an opportunity to plug your, plug your website mm -hmm. that we talked a little bit more extensively about the last time you were on, um, or any projects that you want to, um, share with the listeners. If you want to do that now, uh, it's your um, time. Yeah. So, um, you know, for any listeners who are interested in learning more about my research, um, which is U.S. Mexico borderlands and Latino history here in the U S um, go to nomadicborder.com. Um, you can find um, photo essays um, explaining um, different aspects of the uh, history, kind of how 
on the US-Mexico borders marked incorrectly in Southern Arizona um, to the um, Chicano-Latino anti-war movement against the Vietnam conflict in the 1970s, um, to all manner of other things. I also launched um, a few months ago um, a YouTube channel that I'm still building up um, and it's inaugural. And I video. love it. The ghost town you went to, like, that's good. It's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and thank you, Trish. I've really enjoyed um, learning um, you know, how to use the different Adobe um, editing software. Um, so um, I'm getting really excited to do like further videos. Um, and it's the, the inaugural video. If you look it up on um, YouTube is Sasabe, the Phantom Border Town. Sasabe, the Phantom Border Town. Um, the YouTube channel name is Nomadic Border. Um, frontera nomada. Um, so I'd be more happy to um, receive, you know, more more visitors. I hope to continue expanding on this content and making my research not just something that's at a university cl a classroom level, but also something accessible to um, you know, general public and anyone that's uh, interested. Just such you're such a teacher, and we are like so lucky to have you come on the podcast, Carlos. Um, obviously, you can always come back again. Um, and as your friend, um, when are we going to go hike again? We'll talk about that as soon as we're, <laughs> as we get off. But at this time, um, Carlos, Dr. P, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Trish, for inviting me. And what a, what a wonderful conversation this morning. Thanks for listening. And if you think this is worth listening to, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Be kind to each other, listen to each other, and let's stop being separated by our differences. I don't want to be an army.